Welcome to another Parsons Nose Radio Theater podcast. I'm Lance Davis. At Parsons Nose, our mission is to make more accessible classic works that we should know and enjoy. Tonight, we focus on the great American abolitionist and advocate Frederick Douglass. We know the name, but let's actually experience some of his work. Tonight, his famous Letter to Thomas Auld, his former slave master, published in 1848, considerably before our Civil War. Frederick Douglass, born Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey to an African-American slave, Harriet Bailey, and an unnamed white master in approximately 1818, was originally owned by the Wye Plantation of Talbot County, Maryland, and an overseer named Aaron Anthony. He was then passed on and owned by Lucinda and Thomas Auld, who sent him to be owned by his brother, Hugh Auld, in Baltimore, then sent back to Thomas Auld, who leased him out to various slave masters with the intention of breaking his spirit before returning him to Baltimore. He later tells of Sophie Auld, Thomas's wife, naively teaching him, along with her own son, to begin to read, till she was harshly admonished by her husband for doing so. Too late. The dangerous possibilities of education set fire to the young mind. In 1848, at the age of 20, Douglas finally succeeded in escaping Baltimore to New York, dressed as a sailor in a uniform sewn by Anne Murray, a free black woman and his first wife. She later joined him, and they moved to Rochester, New York, then to New Bedford, Massachusetts, where he worked on the docks, and she took in sewing. Douglas became involved with abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, who encouraged him to choose a new name and to tell his story. Douglas published his Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglas, American Slave, in 1845. In it, he courageously names his oppressors and documents the cruelty he survived. In 1848, he published the following letter in Garrison's anti-slavery newspaper, The Liberator. Douglas shines a blinding light on his former tormentor, demonstrating an eloquence and power that made him a champion spokesperson for freedom that continued throughout his life. Interestingly, some years later, Douglas met with Amanda Auld, Thomas's daughter who's mentioned in the letter, and who had become an abolitionist herself. He also met at the bedside of Thomas Auld in 1877. Both wept as they reminisced. Auld said, I knew you were too smart to be a slave. I would have done the same thing. Douglas replied, I didn't run away from you. I ran away from slavery. Parsons Nose will be recording an adaptation of Douglas' famous narrative later, but tonight let's focus on his letter to his former owner, performed for Parsons Nose Radio Theater by acclaimed American and Los Angeles actor and director Greg Daniel. For more about us and our work, please go to ParsonsKnows.org. But now, a letter to Thomas All. No more auction block for me. No more, no more. No more auction block for me. Many. Letter to Thomas Auld, September 3rd, 1848. Sir, the long and intimate 
though by no means friendly relation, which unhappily subsisted between you and myself, leads me to hope that you will easily account for the great liberty which I now take in addressing you in this open and public manner. The same fact may possibly remove any disagreeable surprise which you may experience on again finding your name coupled with mine, in any other way than in an advertisement, accurately describing my person and offering a large sum for my arrest. In thus dragging you again before the public, I am aware that I shall subject myself to no inconsiderable amount of censure. I shall probably be charged with an unwarrantable, if not a wanton, and reckless disregard of the rights and proprieties of private life. There are those North, as well as South, who entertain a much higher respect for rights which are merely conventional than they do for rights which are personal and essential. Not a few there are in our country who, while they have no scruples against robbing the laborer of the hard-earned results of his patient industry, will be shocked by the extremely indelicate manner of bringing your name before the public. Believing this to be the case, and wishing to meet every reasonable or plausible objection to my conduct, I will frankly state the ground upon which I justify myself in this instance, as well as on former occasions when I have thought proper to mention your name in public. All will agree that a man guilty of theft, robbery, or murder has forfeited the right to concealment and private life, that the community have a right to subject such persons to the most complete exposure. However much they may desire retirement and aim to conceal themselves in their movements from the popular gaze, the public have a right to ferret them out and bring their conduct before the proper tribunals of the country for investigation. Sir, you will undoubtedly make the proper application of these generally admitted principles and will easily see the light in which you are regarded by me. I will not therefore manifest ill temper by calling you hard names. I know you to be a man of some intelligence and can readily determine the precise estimate which I entertain of your character. I may therefore indulge in language which may seem to others indirect and ambiguous and yet be quite well understood by yourself. I have selected this day on which to address you because it is the anniversary of my emancipation. And knowing of no better way, I am led to this as the best mode of celebrating that truly important event. Just ten years ago, this beautiful September morning, yon bright sun beheld me a slave, a poor degraded chattel, trembling at the sound of your voice, lamenting that I was a man and wishing myself a brute. The hopes which I had treasured up for weeks of safe and successful escape from your grasp were powerfully confronted at this last hour by dark clouds of doubt and fear, making my person shake and my bosom to heave with the heavy contest between hope and fear. I have no words to describe to you the deep agony of soul which I experienced on that never-to-be-forgotten morning, for I left by daylight. I was making a leap in the dark. The probabilities, so far as I could by reason determine them, were stoutly against the undertaking. The preliminaries and precautions I had adopted previously all worked badly. I was like one going to war without weapons. Ten chances of defeat 
to one of victory. One in whom I had confided and one who had promised me assistance, appalled by fear at the trial hour, deserted me, thus leaving me the responsibility of success or failure solely with myself. You, sir, can never know my feelings. As I look back to them, I can scarcely realize that I have passed through a scene so trying. Trying, however, as they were, and gloomy as the prospect. Thanks be to the Most High, who was ever the God of the oppressed at the moment which was to determine my whole earthly career. His grace was sufficient. My mind was made up. I embraced the golden opportunity, took the morning tide at the flood, and a free man. Young, active, and strong is the result. I have often thought I should like to explain to you the grounds upon which I have justified myself in running away from you. I am almost ashamed to do so now, for by this time you may have discovered them yourself. I will, however, glance at them. When yet but a child, about six years old, I imbibed the determination to run away. The very first mental effort that I now remember on my part was an attempt to solve the mystery. Why am I a slave? And with this question, my youthful mind was troubled for many days, pressing upon me more heavily at times than others. When I saw the slave driver whip a slave woman, cut the blood out of her neck, and heard her piteous cries, I went away into the corner of the fence, wept, and pondered over the mystery. I had, through some medium, I know not what, got some idea of God, the creator of all mankind, the black and the white, and that he had made the blacks to serve the whites as slaves. How he could do this and be good, I could not tell. I was not satisfied with this theory, which made God responsible for slavery, for it pained me greatly, and I have wept over it long and often. At one time, your first wife, Mrs. Lucretia, heard me singing and saw me shedding tears and asked of me the matter. But I was afraid to tell her. I was puzzled with this question till one night, while sitting in the kitchen, I heard some of the old slaves talking of their parents having been stolen from Africa by white men and were sold here as slaves. The whole mystery was solved at once. Very soon after this, my Aunt Ginny and Uncle Noah ran away, and the great noise made about it by your father-in-law made me for the first time acquainted with the fact that there were free states as well as slave states. From that time, I resolved that I would someday run away. The morality of the act, I dispose as follows. I am myself. You are yourself. We are two distinct persons, equal persons. What you are, I am. You are a man, and so am I. God created both and made us separate beings. I am not by nature bound to you or you to me. Nature does not make your existence depend upon me or mine to depend upon yours. I cannot walk upon your legs or you upon mine. I cannot breathe for you or you for me. I must breathe for myself and you for yourself. We are distinct persons and are each equally provided with faculties necessary to our individual existence. In leaving you, I took nothing but what belonged to me and in no way lessened your means for obtaining an honest living. Your faculty remained yours, and mine became useful to their rightful owner. I therefore see no wrong in any part of the transaction. 
It is true, I went off secretly, but that was more your fault than mine. Had I let you into the secret, you would have defeated the enterprise entirely. But for this, I should have been really glad to have made you acquainted with my intentions to leave. You may perhaps want to know how I like my present condition. I am free to say I greatly prefer it to that which I occupied in Maryland. I am, however, by no means prejudiced against the state as such. Its geography, climate, fertility, and products are such as to make it a very desirable abode for any man. And but for the existence of slavery there, it is not possible that I might again take up my abode in that state. It is not that I love Maryland less, but freedom more. You will be surprised to learn that people at the North labor under the strange delusion that if the slaves were emancipated at the South, they would flock to the North. So far from this being the case, in that event, you would see many old and familiar faces back again to the South. The fact is, there are few here who would not return to the South in the event of emancipation. We want to live in the land of our birth and to lay our bones by the side of our fathers. And nothing short of an intense love of personal freedom keeps us from the South. For the sake of this, most of us would live on a crust of bread and a cup of cold water. Since I left you, I have had a rich experience. I have occupied stations which I never dreamed of when a slave Three of the ten years since I left you, I spent as a common laborer on the wharves of New Bedford, Massachusetts. It was there I earned my first free dollar. It was mine. I could spend it as I pleased. I could buy hams or herring with it without anybody asking any odds of anybody. Oh, that was a precious dollar to me. You remember when I used to make seven or eight or even nine dollars a week in Baltimore? You would take every cent of it from me every Saturday night, saying that I belong to you and my earnings also. I never liked this conduct on your part. To say the best, I thought it a little mean. I would not have served you so, but let that pass. I was a little awkward about counting money in New England fashion when I first landed in Bedford. I like to have betrayed myself several times. I caught myself saying, Fip! for four pence, and at one time a man actually charged me with being a runaway, whereupon I was silly enough to become one by running away from him, for I was greatly afraid he might adopt measures to get me again into slavery, a condition I then dreaded more than death. I soon, however, learned to count money as well as to make it and got on swimmingly. I married soon after leaving you. In fact, I was engaged to be married before I left you. And instead of finding my companion a burden, she was truly a helpmeet. She went to live at service, and I to work on the wharf. And though we toiled hard the first winter, we never lived more happily. After remaining in New Bedford for three years, I met with William Lloyd Garrison, a person of whom you may have possibly heard, as he is pretty generally known among slaveholders. He put it into my head that I might make myself serviceable to the cause of the slave by devoting a portion of my time to telling my own sorrows and those of other slaves which had come under my observation. This was the commencement of a higher state of existence than any to which I had ever aspired. 
I was thrown into society the most pure, enlightened, and benevolent that the country affords. Among these, I have never forgotten you, but have invariably made you the topic of conversation, thus giving you all the notoriety I could do. I need not tell you that the opinion formed of you in these circles is far from being favorable. They have little respect for your honesty and less for your religion. I was going on to relate to you something of my interesting experience. I had not long enjoyed the excellent society to which I have referred before the light of his excellence exerted a beneficial influence on my mind and heart. Much of my early dislike of white persons was removed, and their manners, habits, and customs, so entirely unlike what I had been used to in the kitchen quarters on the plantations of the South, fairly charmed me and gave me a strong disrelish for the coarse and degrading customs of my former condition. I therefore made an effort so to improve my mind and deportment as to be somewhat fitted to the station to which I seem almost providentially called. The transition from degradation to respectability was indeed great, and to get from one to the other without carrying some mark of one's former condition is truly a difficult matter. I would not have you think that I am now entirely clear of all plantation peculiarities, but my friends here, while they entertain the strongest dislike to them, regard me with that charity to which my past life somewhat entitles me, so that my condition in this respect is exceedingly pleasant. So far as my domestic affairs are concerned, I can boast of as comfortable a dwelling as your own. I have industrious and neat companion and four dear children, the oldest a girl of nine years, and three fine boys, the oldest eight, the next six, and the youngest four years old. The three oldest are now going regularly to school. Two can write and read, and the other can spell with tolerable correctness of two syllables. Dear fellows, they are all in comfortable beds and are sound asleep, perfectly secure under my own roof. There are no slaveholders here to rend my heart by snatching them from my arms or blast a mother's dearest host by tearing them from her bosom. These dear children are ours, not to work up into rice, sugar, and tobacco, but to watch over, regard, and protect, and to rear them up in the nurture and admonition of the gospel, to train them up in the paths of wisdom and virtue, and, as far as we can, to make them useful to the world and to themselves. Oh, sir, a slaveholder never appears to me so completely an angel of hell as when I think of and look upon my dear children. It is then that my feelings rise above my control. I meant to have said more with respect to my own prosperity and happiness, but thoughts and feelings which this recital has quickened unfits me to proceed further in that direction. The grim horrors of slavery rise in all their ghastly terror before me. The wails of millions pierce my heart and chill my blood. I remember the chain, the gag, the bloody whip, the death-like gloom overshadowing the broken spirit of the fettered bondman, the appalling liability of his being torn away from wife and children and sold like a beast in the market. Say not that this is a picture of fancy. You well know that I wear stripes on my back inflicted by your direction, and that you, while we were brothers in the same church, cause this right hand with which I am now penning this letter to be closely tied to my left and my person dragged at 
the pistol's mouth, fifteen miles from the bayside to Easton, to be sold like a beast in the market, for the alleged crime of intending to escape from your possession. All this and more you remember, and know to be perfectly true, not only of yourself, but of nearly all of the slaveholders around you. At this moment, you are probably the guilty holder of at least three of my own dear sisters, and my only brother in bondage. These you regard as your property. They are recorded on your ledger, or perhaps have been sold to human fleshmongers, with a view to filling your own ever-hungry purse. Sir, I desire to know how and where these dear sisters are. Have you sold them? Or are they still in your possession? What has become of them? Are they living or dead? And my dear old grandmother, whom you turned out like an old horse to die in the woods, is she still alive? Write and let me know all about them. If my grandmother be still alive, she is of no service to you. For by this time she must be nearly eighty years old, too old to be cared for by one to whom she has ceased to be of service. Send her to me at Rochester, or bring her to Philadelphia, and it shall be the crowning happiness of my life to take care of her in her old age. Oh, she was to me a mother and a father, so far as hard toil for my comfort could make her such. Send me, my grandmother. And my sisters, let me know all about them. I would write to them and learn all I want to know of them without disturbing you in any way, but that through your unrighteous conduct they have been entirely deprived of the power to read and write. You have kept them in utter ignorance and have therefore robbed them of the sweet enjoyments of writing or receiving letters from absent friends and relatives. Your wickedness and cruelty committed in this respect on your fellow creatures are greater than all the stripes you have laid upon my back, or theirs. It is an outrage upon the soul, a war upon the immortal spirit, and one for which you must give account at the bar of our common Father and Creator. The responsibility which you have assumed in this regard is truly awful. And how you could stagger under it these many years is marvelous. Your mind must have become darkened, your heart hardened, your conscience seared and petrified, or you would have long since thrown off the accursed load and sought relief at the hands of a sin-forgiving God. How, let me ask, would you look upon me? Were I some dark night in company with a band of hardened villains to enter the precincts of your elegant dwelling and seize the person of your own lovely daughter, Amanda, and carry her off from your family, friends, and all the loved ones of her youth, make her my slave, compel her to work, and I take her wages, place her name on my ledger as property, disregard her personal rights, Fetter the powers of her immortal soul by denying her the right and privilege of learning to read and write. Feed her coarsely, clothe her scantily, and whip her on the naked back. More and still more horrible, leave her unprotected 
a degraded victim to the brutal lust of fiendish overseers who would pollute, blight, and blast her fair soul, rob her of all dignity, destroy her virtue, and annihilate all in her person the graces that adorn the character of virtuous womanhood? I ask, how would you regard me if such were my conduct? Oh, the vocabulary of the damned would not afford a word sufficiently infernal to express your idea of my God-provoking wickedness. Yet, sir, your treatment of my beloved sisters is in all essential points precisely like the case I have now supposed. Damning as would be such a deed on my part, it would be no more so than that which you have committed against me and my sisters. I will now bring this letter to a close. You shall hear from me again unless you let me hear from you. I intend to make use of you as a weapon with which to assail the system of slavery, as a means of concentrating public attention on the system and deepening their horror of trafficking in the souls of bodies and men. I shall make use of you as a means of exposing the character of the American church and clergy and as a means of bringing this guilty nation with yourself to repentance. In doing this, I entertain no malice towards you personally. There is no roof under which you would be more safe than mine, and there is nothing in my house which you might need for your comfort which I would not readily grant. Indeed, I should esteem it a privilege to set you an example as to how mankind ought to treat each other. I am your fellow man, but not your slave. Frederick Douglass, The Liberator, September 22nd, 1848. We hope you enjoyed A Letter to Thomas Auld, performed by Greg Daniel. For more of our work, we have 50 podcasts of classic works now available. Please go to ParsonsKnows.org, where you can join our newsletter list. You can also find us on Facebook and on iTunes and Spotify. Alexa, play Parsons Knows Radio Theater. Your donations, of course, are always greatly appreciated. Good night and thank you. <laughs>